Well, as I said earlier, um, God kind of changed my direction for this evening because as I was uh, preaching this morning, right in the middle of it, you know, I, 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 we, we've been talking about this surpassing righteousness and love being the, the motivator, love being the, uh, the sustainer of that type of righteousness, the difference between duty uh, and, and surpassing righteousness is love. And we're to love God and we're to love our neighbors ourselves. So I, and I mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And, and as soon as I mentioned it, God said, you need to go there tonight. And, and so um, the whole purpose, I think, is so that we can understand um, what biblical love, that sustaining love, that, that love that transforms our righteousness to where we do our good works in such a way that glorify the Father, what's, what, what differentiates that, what, what's the type of love we're talking about. And, and so if you have your Bibles, you will turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to spend a few minutes looking at the love chapter and being reminded of this, this love that sustains, this love that transforms, this love that, that produces a surpassing righteousness, uh, uh, an exceeding righteousness that Jesus says we're supposed to have. Um, now, just a little bit of context here. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and it is a very diverse church. Uh, and it's uh, got Jews and Gentiles. And, and there are some here who, who have experienced the, when they were filled with the, the Spirit of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues. Some had not spoken in tongues. Some spoke in tongues often, some didn't. And there was beginning to be this rivalry between those who have spoken in tongues, those who haven't spoken in tongues, those who do it often and those who don't do it very often. And, and there became this spiritual pride uh, within the church uh, about, uh, hey, I speak in tongues, you know, and I have spoken in tongues. And, and I was going to tell you, that, that's a, a, a big deal with some folks today. Um, and now, I, there, there's two, two very polarizing opinions on the gift of tongues. Uh, one is that, that if you are truly saved, then you will receive the second filling of the Holy Spirit and you will speak in tongues. And it is absolutely necessary for salvation for you to speak in tongues. And if you haven't spoken in tongues, then you're not saved, obviously. That's, that's one end of the spectrum. But then there's also the, the other end of the spectrum, which is known as cessationalists. That that spiritual gift has ceased. There is no need for the speaking in tongues anymore. And so, so if you speak in tongues, you're a heretic. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't, I'm not a proponent of either one. I'm a biblical proponent of, of the gift of speaking in tongues. And Paul says there is a gift of speaking in tongues. Paul says I, I speak in tongues often in prayer. And he talks about later on or, or uh, before this, he talks about how if it's going to happen, it needs to happen in an orderly fashion, and, and God's not a God of chaos, and, and, and that, that it doesn't edify the church, that it's something only between you and God, and, and so there's really no real need for it in uh, worship. But he never says that the, the gift of speaking in tongues is done away with. Nowhere in Scripture can you find that any of the spiritual gifts end. So is there a gift of speaking in tongues? Absolutely. I think there is. I think it's very biblical to say that, hey, some people at times will speak in tongues. The Baptists got so far and so afraid of the charismatic movement, even up until recently, if you just had a prayer language, you said you spoke in tongues in prayer one time, and you were a heretic as a pastor. 
Uh, and so it became a, um, a, a determining factor as to whether you were not a true called pastor or not in the Southern Baptist. Is you say they're speaking in tongues, man, you, you, you don't belong with us. I had that experience, not speaking in tongues, but uh, I had a, a church that was, uh, uh, had sent me a questionnaire years ago when I first started uh, searching for a pastorate position and God was leading me into the pastorate, and one of the very first questions and the first probably five or six questions dealt with whether or not I ever spoke in tongues or I believed in speaking tongues or I had a private prayer language. That was the first thing they asked. They asked if I was saved or not. That kind of determined whether I was saved, I guess. Well, I answered it from a biblical perspective, and I don't think they liked the answer because I never heard back from them, which is Okay. But, but Paul is writing to this church that's struggling with this spiritual pride and this division between the church over spiritual gifts. And, and Paul is saying, look, there are spiritual gifts and we're, we're one body and there's all kind of different gifts uh, given to the body to, to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. He says, but the unifying factor, the thing that is most important is not whether you speak in tongues or not, is is what you do motivated by love. He says the most important thing is love. So so we're going to pick up and we're just going to look at chapter 13. And uh, I want us to be reminded today uh, of this this thing that that creates this um, exceeding righteousness. We said it's love. We said we're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbors and stuff. Well, what does that love look like? And, and what's the difference between the love of the Bible and the way the word is used today? It's been perverted into so many different things. And, and so I think we need to be reminded of what biblical love looks like and the love that transforms our, our lives, the love that transforms our hearts, the love that transforms our actions. And, and the love that produces this surpassing righteousness that Jesus says that we're supposed to have. I'm not going to ask you to stand because we're going to go through this entire chapter. It's only 13 verses, but, but I'm not going to ask you to stand as we read through it. Follow along, if you will. Chapter 13, verse 1 of the letter to the Corinthians. It says, If I speak with tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me Nothing. So Paul is saying here the, the most important factor, the most important characteristic, the most important part of our being a Christian and a follower of God is not what we do, it's what motivates our doing. Do we love? Are we doing what we do out of a love for God and a love for people? Is love causing us to live radically different is love causing us to preach the word of god is love causing us to tell this mountain to be moved or, or, or am i just trying to show off 
Am I trying to build myself up in the eyes of the congregation? Or am I trying to honor God and do the things that bring glory to God? Am I doing my good works for my own glory? Or am I doing my good works in such a way that others will see it and glorify the Father, as he said in uh, Matthew chapter 5? So the defining and most important characteristic of a Christian is love. And everything we do must be motivated by and be out from an overflow of the love we have in our heart. Now, what does love look like? Because there's all kinds of things, all kinds of definitions for love. What is this love that produces a surpassing righteousness and exceeding righteousness that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that we are supposed to have? That exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, that exceeds the righteousness of just good people. Because love is patient, Love is kind, is not jealous. Love is not brag, and is not arrogant. Love is patient, means it's long-suffering. means it doesn't fly off the handle easy, it doesn't give up quickly. Love is patient, love is long-suffering, love is enduring. It says, love is kind, it's not harsh. Love is, is not uh, mean. Love doesn't produce uh, hatefulness in us. Love is kind. It's, it's compassionate towards other people. It is not jealous. It's not looking out for its own. It's not jealous when somebody else is in the spotlight. It isn't jealous when somebody else uh, gets the attention. It isn't jealous when somebody else is the leader and I'm to be a follower at this time. It isn't jealous about what God is doing in somebody else's life and I want some of that and I want to be a part of that. I want God to do that in my life. It's not jealous and looking for its own. It celebrates when God does something in someone else's life or moves them to the forefront of a ministry. It's patient, it's kind, it's not jealous and love does not brag and is not arrogant. Again, it's not about me. Love is not about me. Love produces sacrifice. Love is long-suffering. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not act unbecoming. In other words, it, it, it doesn't make a scene. It, it doesn't try and tear other people down. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Now, what, is, what do you think of when you hear that word provoked? If you're provoked, you're usually provoked to retaliation. You're provoked to get back at someone. In other words, love doesn't retaliate. Just because someone does something to you doesn't mean you do it back to them. Love's not provoked to evil. Love's not provoked to paying back what you've been given. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is long-suffering. And, and, and it's not determined on how you're treated by other people as to how you treat them. Love isn't provoked. If you love them and you act lovingly towards them, then you're not going to repay evil with evil. Jesus talks about, we're going to get to in Matthew chapter 5, that we are to repay evil with good. We're never to seek vengeance. We're never to try and get even. Love is not provoked. So if we're going to have this surpassing righteousness in our life, then we can't 
retaliate. We can't let ourselves be provoked by the actions of other people to treat them in a bad way, to treat them in an unloving manner. We cannot be provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong that is suffered. Again, that's part of that love is not provoked. In order to be provoked, you've got to be keeping an accounting of what somebody else does to you. I've suffered, so by golly, you're going to suffer. I'm going to treat you like you've treated me. I'm going I'm to get back at you for what you've done to me. It doesn't take an account. It, 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 it does not have a ledger. Now, most of you young folks don't know what a ledger is. Those of us who had to suffer through accounting in high school, you had a, a, a credit side and a debit side. I never could get those two things straight. Just going to be honest, again, uh, uh, a moment of transparency. M most of my best friends in high school were girls, and there were two classes we had to take at the same time. We had to take, home, well, we signed up to take home ec and accounting. And I told them, look, because it's not just the girls today that couldn't cook. I told them, look, I'll get us through ho uh, um, home ec. I'll do all the cooking. I'll sew our project. You just do our work in accounting. And we just made a bargain. I got them through home ec. They got me through accounting. Now, love doesn't keep an account. Doesn't keep a checklist. Love doesn't say, well, you remember two weeks ago when? Remember two years ago when? That's keeping an account. The things that are suffered. You may not say it, but in your mind, you're playing it over. They did this, and I got a chance to get back at them, so I'm going to... I'm not going to do this because they did that, or I'm going to do this because they did that. And it's, it's, it's keeping an account. Love doesn't do that. Love's not provoked. If we're going to have a surpassing or exceeding righteousness, we cannot keep an account of the suffering that other people have put on us. And that's what, exactly what it says. Love does not keep an account of things suffered. We can't keep a running score. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love gets no joy when those people that hurt us experience hurt. Love gets no joy from participating in unrighteousness. So it can be taken in both ways. Love doesn't find any joy in the wicked suffering and love doesn't find any joy in causing the wicked to suffer. God was, was talking to Ezekiel, and, and he was talking about the, the, the judgment that was about to come upon the people. And he would told uh, Ezekiel, look, you are to speak whatever I tell you to speak. If I tell you to, to tell somebody that they're about to die, you better tell them they're about to die. If, you tell them that, if I tell you that you're to go to tell them that they're doing good and pat them on the back, you go pat them on the back. He says, but what joy do I get in the death of the wicked? God said, I don't get any joy from the death of the wicked, but that he would turn from his wicked ways and live. And so if we're going to have the love of Christ, the love that produces an exceeding righteousness, then we've, we can't find joy in the, the death of the wicked. We can't find joy in the, in the, the downfall 
of those who are acting wickedly. We find joy in the truth. We find the joy that they come to the truth and get saved. We find joy when we walk in the truth, not when we're getting even with somebody. Love rejoices, finds joy in truth. When people surrender to the truth of the gospel, when people uh, understand the truth of their need for a Savior and repent of their sins, just like God gets no joy in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn from their wickedness and live. That's what we should be seeking after. That's the love that he's talking about that, that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. That causes us to, to go that extra mile that he's going to talk about a little bit later on in the, in the um, Sermon on the Mount. Somebody asks you to go a mile, you go with them too. Somebody sues you for your shirt, you give them your coat along with it. What causes us to do that? Love. Love for God. Love for people. Produces an exceeding righteousness. More than just people see as you as a good person. More than just people seeing you doing good things, but seeing you do them in such a way and to such a radical extent that they glorify God. There must be something real about that God that he says he serves. Because Man, he doesn't treat anybody the way I've seen people get treated. He responds so radically different. He, he, he thinks, he, he speaks so radically different. He's so much more patient than I've ever seen people be. He, he doesn't try to get even. He's always, always trying to do what's right and what's good. This is the love that we're to let the Father grow and develop in us. It's the love that He has towards us. Th this, is, this is how God looks at us. God doesn't find any joy in punishing us. He finds joy in repentance and righteousness. He's patient with us. He's always uh, long-suffering with us. He's always compassionate towards us, always kind. Number seven and eight, verses seven and eight, talk about the consistency of love. Love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. Now, does it mean love is gullible? Love believes all things? Love hopes in all things? Love bears all things. I think what this means is that love is the eternal optimist. It produces optimism rather than pessimism. It bears all things. Why are we able to bear all things? Why are we able to bear the, the negativity that people place on us? Why are we able to bear the misuse that people may lay on us? Why are we able to bear all things, the, the struggles, the hardships, the hurts of this? Or why are we able to, to bear up and, and make it through those things? Why are we able to hope when it seems like things are hopeless? Why do, do Christians have, uh, should, should we have a, a, a hope 
that, that the world does not understand. Why, why, why do we have a peace that goes beyond understanding? It's not because of anything within, within us, but it's our, our faith and our relationship with the one who is always provides, who is always there, who is all-powerful. That love for God and the love he has for us should create in us a sustainability to love other people no matter what. Because we are loved no matter what. It should create an optimism, a positive attitude in a follower of Christ. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Our, our, our conviction, our confidence not in our ability, not in the things of this world. We believe all things. We are confident in all things. It's unshakable because our confidence is, not, confidence is not in us. It's not in how other people treat us. It's in God. Our confidence is in him. So, so we, can, we can believe all things. Believe those things that God says that are so unbelievable. Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these other things will be given to you. Trust him. Believe it. And we can believe in other people. We can believe that, that there's nobody that's beyond the grace or the mercy of God. There's nobody that God can't change. There's nobody that God can't reach. There's nobody that, that God will not save if they'll come to him. Love produces an optimism. Love produces a positive attitude, not negativity, not pessimism, not a woe is me. Oh, things are falling apart. Oh, things are terrible. Oh, I can't believe this is going to happen. And oh, that's not a product of love. Love produces optimism. Love never fails. This is a tough one for people to believe and for us to grasp because we have had people's love that has failed us. And there, are, there, are, there are so many marriages that have fallen apart because one person, one of the two decided they didn't love them anymore. People that we, we've trusted, people that we have loved and, and, and have invested in for years and been good friends for years have stabbed us in the back, have let us down, have, have mortally hurt us. So to think that love never fails is hard for us to grasp. But we've got to take our eyes off of the love that man loves with and the love of God. The love of God never fails. He loved us before we were saved. He loved us before we were born. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we know what love is. His loving kindness is always towards us. He never ceases to love us. And if we're going to develop a surpassing righteousness and an exceeding righteousness then we've got to let the Holy Spirit develop in us this love that we've received from God and to live in that love and to share in that love and that no matter what happens, I'm going to love. 
doesn't mean I don't call sin, sin. It doesn't mean that I don't uh, uphold the truth and, and, and uphold a level of godliness and a, and a biblical standard for my life, for other people's lives, for my marriage, for my children, for my workers, for, for people that are around me that, hey, this is the standard that God has set and we need to live up to that. God calls it sin. I'm not calling it sin. God did. Love doesn't let the truth go. Love rejoices in the truth. Love doesn't overlook sin. We speak the truth in love. So that other people that we're speaking to can experience the, the grace of God, can experience the forgiveness of God, can experience the, the salvation of God. Love never fails. But people do. And if we're going to have this exceeding righteousness, it's got to be based upon an overflow of the love that we have received from God. And if I receive it from God, he gives it to me so that I can share it with others. That's why God is so patient with you, so you'll know how to be patient with others. That's why God is so uh, loving to, and, and kind towards you, so you can be kind towards others. Even when they're not kind to you. This, this is the kind of love that produces exceeding righteousness. So he continues on, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away with. So he drops back and starts talking about these gifts again. That, hey, all gifts are, uh, of the Spirit are temporary. He said, um, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it'll be done away with. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. So he says, we're, we, we don't understand everything right now. We only know a little bit right now. We can only see and, and comprehend a, a little bit right now. One day when Jesus comes back, we're, we're going to see everything as it is. We're going to know things that we, we never thought we would understand. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child and thought as a child, reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I did away with childish things. He says, as I matured, I saw things differently. I understood things more than I ever did as a child. I understand. The things that the reasons my parents did what they did now because I'm a parent of children. I understand the stresses that dad was under when I was a kid and why he sometimes said things that hurt or did things that, that I thought was unfair. It was because of the stress of trying to, to, to provide a living for a family. And it was stressful, it was hard, and he was learning just like I was learning. See, we, as we grow, we understand more. And as we grow in Christ, we're going to understand more of the love of God, so therefore we can share more of the love of God. We, we, we understand a little bit, and so we share a little bit. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. He says, look, we are in a, we are in a time where we know very little. So prophecy and, and all these spiritual gifts, they're limited. They're for a short time, and they're only needed for a short time. He says, but now, 
Faith, hope, and love abide these three. For Christians, the three most important things, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Have you ever wondered why that? Why did he say the greatest is love? Why is love more important than faith? Why is love greater than this living hope that we have? Because it's the only one that endures for eternity. One day I won't need faith. Because I'll be with him face to face. Everything that I've, uh, I've placed my faith in, I will see and I will know and I will experience. I won't have to have faith that one day it'll be there. I won't need hope anymore. I won't need to look forward to. I will be living it but I will always love. And the longer I'm with him, I think the more I'm going to love him. Because the more I understand his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his long-suffering, all that I've experienced on this side of heaven, when I get there, I'll understand it more and it will cause me to love him more. Right now we have three things that our relationship with God is built on. Faith, hope, and love. Most important, the only eternal is love. So build on that love. Grow in that love. Share that love. Have an exceeding, a surpassing righteousness because of it. Any thoughts?